0: Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. You may be wondering, um, isn't it Easter Sunday? Why has not uh, Pastor York chosen a resurrection text since it is Easter? Uh, Well, you don't necessarily have to go to one of the gospel resurrection accounts or a number of other accounts, 1 Corinthians 15, for example, we think of the resurrection chapter of the Bible to find the resurrection. In fact, in God's providence, as I'm preaching through Acts, uh, which the book of Acts is in many respects, the book of Christ's resurrection. They are to be his witnesses, witnesses that he is raised from the dead. And in Acts chapter 13, having heard a little bit of Saul, who is now called Paul, having seen his conversion as he experienced Saul, the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, now we have the very first full a message of him preached, found anywhere in the Bible, and it is a message which zeroes in with laser-like focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so I thought, well, should we not continue? on that path that God has placed us on in his good providence, bringing us to this amazing sermon of Paul on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're not diverting to some other resurrection text. We have a resurrection text right before us in Acts chapter 13. I will be reading verses 13 through 43. It's a little longer, but bear in mind, this is... A sermon, perhaps not even every word, perhaps Luke has condensed some of it, but it is a sermon that Paul preached. And so give your mind to this sermon, and then as you will hear another sermon preached on it. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood, stood up. And motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the great people during their stay, uh, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and having and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan he gave them their land as an inheritance all this took about 450 years and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king and god gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years And while and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me is one, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to tie, to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, Lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after, meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's ask God's blessing now on his holy word. Almighty God, we do come to you, the triune and living God. We come to Jesus Christ the only savior of this world, the only hope. He is the only one in whom there is remission of sins, the only mediator between God and man. Oh, Lord, we pray this morning that you would enable us to behold the good news in Christ crucified. And uniquely this day, especially as Paul accents it and sets forth the good news, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, O oh Lord, may we be fed. Indeed, may we feast on our resurrected Savior. We do this, Lord, grant this for your namesake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've already mentioned why I'm looking at this passage on this Easter morn. Uh, Note, as we begin, just a matter of introduction to the text itself, as we begin to dive into this text, we see Paul and Barnabas now continuing on this first missionary journey. They travel from Paphos. That is where, the week before last, I was on vacation last week, but the week before last, we saw them at the city of Paphos, which is on the island of Cyprus. And now, uh, today, we see them making their way back to the mainland, not going back, backward where they were, but now going northward, back onto the continent, to uh, uh, the south, uh, what we would refer to as the south of Asia, Asia Minor. They come to the city of Perga, and eventually to Antioch in Pisidia, that is, to say, a very different Antioch, From the city which we saw them starting off from, which was their uh, sending church, so to speak. In fact, they are now in this region of Asia, which Paul even identifies, or rather Luke identifies here, as Pamphylia, uh, which is just south of the region of Galatia, of which we know from Paul's writings that he has a book written to the Galatians. And you will recall that um, last time, I addressed the fact that now, having seen several times that Luke speaks of Barnabas and Saul even coming to call him Paul last time, Barnabas and Saul now called Paul. We see that from from that point forward, even today, really the order is reversed. It was first Barnabas, then Paul, but now from here on out, it is Paul. Notice we see that in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, that is Barnabas and the one who we see in this passage, uh, Mark, John Mark, who we will have occasion to revisit his departure here later in the book of Acts. Uh, Now of these, Paul is clearly the leader. And Again, as I said last time, may God grant us a sort of humility to accept the fact when uh, God raises up people where where we may have been taking the lead, uh, God grants that someone may uh, even lead in our place. May we have Barnabas-like humility, because Barnabas does not seem to fight this matter in any way, shape, or form. Now, the reason for my sermon title, you know the reason why the text, the reason why the title... Good news, God has raised Jesus from the dead. That's found right in verses 32 and 33. Look at that for a moment. There we read this. And we bring you the good news, literally one word. Proclaim good news to you that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do You want to know what the good news is. Do you want to know what the gospel is? If you do not have a special focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Paul locates it here, you cannot ever properly understand what the good news, what the gospel is. And so we want to consider the gospel, the good news today, particularly as we look at Jesus who God raises from the dead. The one of whom Paul says, we bring you good news. God has raised Jesus. Well, let's consider three things as we look at this good news. First of all, we'll consider the background uh, to the good news. Secondly, we'll consider the fulfillment of the good news. And finally, we'll consider the summons of the good news. The background of this good news, the fulfillment of the good news, and the summons of the good news. Well, we're told this in beginning in verse fourteen. On the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Of course, Barnabas's name was a son of encouragement. <laughs> and so they asked uh, this group and and Uh, Do you have any encouragement? And Paul stands up, he motions with his hand, and he begins to speak. Uh, This is one of the unique sermons in the book of Acts. It is uh, like the sermon of Stephen, in that it rehearses a lot of the history of Israel. But in many respects, it is quite like the sermon of Peter, back in chapter 2 of Acts. We see in verses 17 through 21, which we're not going to really, we're going to skim over that portion, that uh, Paul considers basically the history of Israel from when? From Abraham to David. And then he zeroes in and he focuses in on really what is his main point in that history, the main one that he is looking at. And it is David. And again, that's why I said this is a lot like Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, which focuses in on David. Now, what is unique and special about David? We don't have to guess in terms of Paul's thinking. He tells us right here in verse 23. Actually, verse 22, (laughs) I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my own will. This is. David was a man unique in the Old Testament. If you want to see a one who was after God's heart. Go read the Psalms. You will see one who wanted to possess God and commune with God and know know the very heart of God. David, more than anyone else in the Old Testament, we could say, resembles the Messiah who is to come. David is kind of the high point of the Old Testament. We could all say it's sort of building up and we could all say it sort of goes down from there on in the Old Testament. David not only is the one who is after God's heart, we read also in verse 22, he is the one who will do all my will. Now, where are we told in the Old Testament that David is the one who does all of God's will? Uh, Perhaps it is this place in 1 Kings 15, 5. There we read this. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord And did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. But there's a little except in that verse. (laughs) Except in the matter of Uriah. The Hittite, of course, we know that David would have had many sins, but this is one spectacular sin that sets out. He that is set out in a unique way. David was so wonderful. He was unique. He shows us uh, the heart of one who belongs to God, who certainly would have been joined to the one who will save God's people. But he himself was not that person as much as David exemplified what the Messiah would be. Clearly, he was not that perfectly himself. And so the background of the good news seen in Acts as it focuses in on David is that there were many promises given in the Old Testament. Those promises come to their highest expression in a person, in the person of David. But David was not the Messiah. He was not the one who Though he was after God's heart, not in a perfect way. Though he did all of God's will, not perfectly. And besides that, what was the problem with David? Well, as this text makes very clear, David died. And so having looked at the background of the Old Testament, which it's uh, of the gospel in the Old Testament, with its focus on David, how will the good news? How will we get good news that that excels beyond David, that shows us hope beyond one who, though very greatly loved God, sought after his heart, did his will, yet failed and died. Well, that brings us to uh, point two, the fulfillment of the good news. And what uh, verses 26 through 29 make perfectly clear is uh, that the promises to David were fulfilled but they were fulfilled in a very unique way. God fulfilled them in the midst of Israel, even as Israel, Paul says, did not recognize. They did not recognize the Messiah God sent to them. So you see, God's promises being fulfilled as there's no fulfillment, no recognition, so to speak, uh, amidst Israel. Notably, we read in verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. He did not recognize him. Up until this point in the sermon, Paul hardly mentions Jesus, only once mentioning his name. And so uh, who is this him that they did not recognize? But who did they not recognize? Verse 27 says this, the one that they did not recognize is the one of whom even John the Baptist says, what do you suppose, that I am he? I am not he. No, behold, after me, one is coming. There is a coming one. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. A special recognition was given to Moses. Moses. A special recognition was given to David. A special recognition was even given to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, I'm not him. Moses was not him. David's not him. I'm not him. The one who came to be the Savior, he was not recognized. Even verse 27 at the very end, the one uh, to whom the prophets testify, whom they did not recognize, verse 27 says this, they fulfilled the word's Of the prophets by condemning him. They fulfilled them not just by failing to recognize him, but going beyond that, rejecting him, condemning him. We read in verse 28 though they didn't recognize him, though they condemned him, there was no guilt worthy of death. He had no guilt in him. And yet, what did they do? Paul says in verse 28 they asked. Pilate, to have him executed. Beloved, who is the one who has guilt worthy of death? Who is the one worthy of execution from God himself? It is not this one. It is not this lamb of God. It is you. It is me. It is every living, breathing descendant of Adam apart from Jesus Christ. He had nothing worthy in him that he should be condemned to death and sentenced to execution. But all of us do. All of us do. Paul goes on to say in verse 29, still addressing the issue of fulfillment. Those who rejected the Messiah, fulfilling God's own purpose concerning him. He says this in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Why will not you, why will not I end up in places like that, which were places of consummate curse, The tree, which is to say the cross. The tomb, those are places of ultimate judgment and curse. Why is it that the one who deserved not those things, received them, how will you escape? You who do deserve them in and of yourself, escape such things. Well, the same Paul who preaches this sermon here, explains why God grants deliverance to those in this one, in Romans 5, verses 7 and 8, why he would die for them. Here's the reason why. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why ultimately, why ultimately will it not be you on the cross, in the grave, in the place of ultimate judgment? It is not because of anything found in you or anything found in me. It is because of what is found in God. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. It is because of the love of God. God's love is what motivates and is the ultimate explanation why you may escape his judgment. The only way you will escape those places of curse is because God has sent a substitute to suffer, to die in your place. The one who dies uh, not for the righteous, not even for good people. You are not righteous. You are not good. Paul says you and I are sinners. And God showed his love by sending his son to die for you. The full and final way you can know ultimately that you who look to Jesus Christ, who died in your place, the ultimate way you can have assurance that you will be delivered from final condemnation is not just that he dies for you, though. If Christ remains in the tomb, clearly God has no desire to accept his sacrifice on your behalf. If he remains in the tomb, you have no hope. If he remains rotting in that tomb, then it must be the case that he himself deserves that fate. And if that is the case, how can there be any good news? How can there be any gospel found in Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, the good news is over. In fact, if he is not raised from the dead, not just for his own sake, but for your sake, as your leader, as your savior, as your head, as one of you. But not only is the good news over it, it never was in the first place. There never has been or never will be any good news if Jesus is not raised from the dead, Look at what Paul says in verse 32 and 33 though. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as glorious as the cross is, and it is wonderful, and there is no hope without the cross. There is no hope at all, finally and fully, without the resurrection of the crucified one. But you are called to rejoice this morning because the message, the good news that is proclaimed to you is not that Jesus remained on the cross or in the grave. God has raised him. You can be assured, you can be certain as you look to Jesus Christ raised that God has accepted his sacrifice for you. You can be certain that he he himself did not deserve death and was raised to life as your leader, as your head, as your representative. Look at the end of verse 33. There Paul cites uh, Jesus' resurrection in fulfillment to a psalm. By by the way, as a kind of an aside, uh, this is the only place that I know of anyways, I'm pretty certain it's the only place in the Old Testament where an Old Testament chapter, a psalm anyways, is numbered. As he says in the second psalm, and we could probably think about what that tells us about the ordering of the Psalter another occasion. But here, Paul says this, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What? what? What are you saying, Paul? When Christ was raised, he was begotten? What does Paul mean by that? We, we need to think about that for a moment. Of course, as you read Paul's epistles, of course he knows that Jesus is eternally the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He knows that there is never a time in which he is not God's Son in that sense. But you see, Paul also knows that when Jesus Christ took on flesh, when he entered into the world as David's descendant, he came as God's Son, his incarnated Son. As he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, in weakness. He was the Son of God in weakness. The Westminster Standards calls that a state of weakness and a state of humiliation. He could die. And he did die. But does Christ, the one who was from eternity... Uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, as he comes as the incarnated Son in weakness, does he remain the Son of God in weakness? Paul says this in Romans 1, 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. In power, according to the spirit of holiness. Note this, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what we see here is a glorious doctrine first announced in a sermon later developed in Romans and 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ had two estates, an estate of weakness as the Son of God, but an estate of power. And as he is raised from the dead, he is birthed, he is begotten into a new realm of life as it were in his resurrection he's born he's reborn as the incarnated son of god who had existed in a state of weakness but now he is raised romans 1 4 the son of god in power that is so so important for you it is not just a fine finely tuned theological point you need to know this You need to know what Paul is saying, that on the day of his resurrection, he was begotten as God's son in power. For if Christ is the heir of David, David, who was God's king on behalf of his people. And if to be a king is to do what? Among other things, as our standards tell us, is to defeat our enemies. If that is the case, there must be a descendant of David who defeats the enemy of death. One who, unlike David himself, who Paul says in verse 36, citing Psalm 16, saw corruption. Do you have a king? Do you have a warrior who has not only defeated sin at the cross, But do you have a king who defeats even the last enemy? Do you have one who has defeated death? If you have any savior less than Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one whom God raised to be the son of God in power, who Paul says here in verse 33, that he, on the day of his resurrection, he is begotten as God's son, the heir of the throne of David, the king, now the son of God of God in power. If you have him, you have such a savior, one who defeats death, and you see it in his resurrection. If you do not have that one, then you you don't have a savior who gives you hope, not a savior who gives you hope of deliverance from the enemy of death. And if you don't have one who delivers from the hope of death, you have no savior who delivers from the hope of sin. Really, you have only before you the the prospect of what the Bible calls the second death, which is spoken about in the book of Revelation where God uh, uh, will, will grant that those who do not have the first resurrection, which you have if you're a Christian right now, you will face the second death, which will be life forever away from his favorable presence to know him perfectly only in wrath for all eternity in hell. And every single person in this room who is not vitally joined to Jesus Christ, that's your prospect. It's not a hopeful one. Therefore, having looked at the Uh, fulfillment, or having looked at the background of the gospel, the fulfillment of the gospel in history, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, let us now look at the third point, the summons of the gospel, because I don't want to, of course, leave you on that very unhopeful note, and Paul doesn't either. In fact, we've already heard of how Psalm 2 proclaims the future work of the Messiah, Who will be begotten on a special day. That is the day of Jesus' resurrection. That same psalm goes on to say. That God installs that one as king on his holy hill. He gives him the rod of iron with which he will decimate all of his enemies. And then he says in Psalm 2 verse 10. Be wise and be warned. This is what has happened to Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. He has been installed as God's king. He's been given the rod of iron. Be wise and be warned. There's a summons to come to him now and to make friendship with him while there is yet still time. And we see that very summons in Paul's uh, message in verses 38 and 39. hear, Hear it. Hear the note of summons. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It is not enough to know who Jesus is. It is not enough to know what he has done. It is not even enough to believe. As I've been talking about to the new members class, James says even the demons know and believe. There must be a final element of faith. There must be trusting, resting. Are you yourselves personally looking to him in faith? Are you trusting in him? If you are, then and then alone do you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven you. There is no sin. There is absolutely no sin that you can, cannot find forgiveness from in Jesus Christ. You need to know that because um, we, d- we doubt that in our heart of hearts. None of us believes as we look at ourselves, that there is the possibility for forgiveness. And it seems like in this day and age where um, there is an intensity of uh, of thought given to if even if you made some mistake uh, in your life years and years ago, you'll, you'll never find any uh, forgiveness, uh, not from people on earth, uh, certainly not from God either. God does not think that way. If you look to Jesus Christ you find forgiveness. Verse 39, by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you think the law of Moses can free you? It cannot free you. You need Jesus Christ. You need the gospel. What do you need to be delivered from? Paul says you can be delivered from everything which you could not be delivered by the law of Moses. What you need to be delivered from? You need to be delivered from sin's guilt. You are condemned as a sinner apart from Jesus Christ. The law of Moses cannot deliver you from the guilt of sin. But when God saves you, he delivers you from that guilt of sin. He justifies you. Your sins are forgiven. But he, does he deliver you from the guilt of sin only to let you remain in the, and wallow in the pigsty of sin? the rest of your life, delivering you from its guilt, but leaving you in its power. Of course he does not. We see this as Luke reports uh, that Paul's, uh, Paul's understanding is that God sets us free even from the power of sin, not perfectly, but we still live in the presence of sin in our life, but more and more he is delivering us from the power of sin. We see that in verse 43, where Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel, the good news which comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that as you look to him, you are delivered from that which the law could not deliver you, not only the guilt of your sin, but you are delivered as well. From the power of sin, Uh, again, this is the idea taught clearly in Romans 6, that sin is no no longer the dominating master in your life. Do you still struggle with it? Of course you do. But here Paul, speaking of the resurrection of Christ and the power of sin in your life from Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christian, hear the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christ's resurrection. As you look to him, you are delivered. You are completely delivered from sin's guilt. You are forgiven but he also delivers you from that ugly, horrible power of sin so that you have a new life, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, which you are by his power, not your own, but by his power to walk in. And therefore, I would say with you, I would say to you, as Paul and Barnabas say to these people at the very end of our text, They urged them, I urge you, continue, continue in the grace of God. The continuing of the grace of God seems to be linked to the coming to hear God's word again. Uh, They longed to hear it. They come and preach to us the good news on the next Sabbath day. Continue in the grace of God. Grow in godliness. Grow in likeness. Again, not by your own strength, but by the strength of your resurrected King the one born as the son of God in power. Do not presume that you can have just a part of Christ, the part of him which addresses the guilt of your sin. Leave aside the part of him which addresses the power of sin. You have all of Christ or you have none of Christ. Christian, young person, older person as well. Think about this if you are not growing closer to God in some way, and I would say it is the case that you are growing further from him. If you are not moving toward him in your life, even in ways perhaps almost imperceptible, then you are moving away from him, if your affections for him are not deepening in some way, if your heart is not becoming more and more like the heart of your king, which is after God's own heart, You are not moving closer to him. You are moving away from him. Think deeply on that. Think deeply on that. There is no neutral standing before God. And again, in closing, therefore, I urge you to continue in the grace of God, in the good news found in Jesus Christ, your resurrected Savior, who delivers you from all that the law could not, who delivers you from sin, who delivers you even from death itself. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.